Haskell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello and welcome to our final podcast of 2017. And in keeping with the spirit of the season, this is a bumper edition with a whole host of different people. We start off talking about the theme of flexible working, which is something which increasingly uh, we've been talking about uh, after Justine Greening said that it was one of her priorities. And we start with a practical example of that. John Bush, who is a head teacher in the Wirral, talks about being a joint principle in this case and talks about the logistics of that and how you tell the story to parents about being someone who's sharing that role. Then we've got Sarah Ford, she is our specialist in pay and conditions and she talks about things you need to look out for in your contract if you move from one school or academy or trust to another one. There are things which are tripwires there and in the spirit of ethical leadership we think there are some really important things to be aware of both as an employer and an employee. Then you've got Nick McKenzie, who works for one of our premier partners, Brown Jacobson. I was particularly interested in what he was talking about as a parent and what he hopes the education system does for his children and the kind of skills they're going to need in a very complex, changing world. Next, you've got Julie Robinson from the Independent Schools Council, and she talks about the work that independent schools play in our system and our shared interest in making sure that every child from every background, whatever kind of school they go to, does their very best. Next up is Mark Dorr. He is the Chief Executive of the Association of Employers and Learning Providers and he gives a really interesting perspective on apprenticeships at a time when technical education is so much in everybody's thoughts. Next you've got Matt Davis. Matt is from the Education Development Trust. There's all kinds of insight from them in how do you make a system which can feel pretty fragmented actually join up so that you're bringing best practice and developing people's skills across a range of different uh, schools within trusts. He also talks about a really interesting initiative there called the Future Teaching Scholars Programme, which is identifying really talented students in maths and physics at the age of about 13 and developing them through to become teachers in the future. It's exactly the kind of thing we're going to need to do more of. Askell's very committed to a broad and balanced curriculum with an academic core uh, and, and really good enrichment both within the classroom and beyond the classroom. So there was an opportunity to talk to Claire Somerville. She's the head of children's and young people's dance at One Dance UK and it's an organisation I've got a real affinity for partly because I was involved in the judging of the Dance Teacher of the Year awards last year and as a head teacher I just saw over all those years the impact that dance and the arts generally made on the lives and the culture of a school and it's just so important we keep that at the forefront of our thinking particularly at a time when inevitably people are having to reduce courses, make cuts because of the funding crisis that so many people are feeling. And we will look back and regret hugely if that has left some young people who ought to have had access to the arts and to sport and to all the other things that enrich our lives so much uh, without them. Then you've got Claudia Harris. Claudia is the ebullient chief executive of the Careers and Enterprise Company, Uh, We've had a career strategy from the government recently and she is somebody who has just got all kinds of practical thoughts on how we can have opportunities for meaningful encounters between young people in school and employers to help shape and motivate them as they kind of head into the world of work. Then uh, just an interesting unexpected uh, encounter at breakfast, I think it was actually, with uh, Sam Kent, who is an assistant head teacher who was at one of our uh, regional information conferences. He was in Taunton. He's an assistant head who wants to be a head teacher. And when we so often talk gloomily about the pipeline of people wanting to be heads, he says absolutely clearly he wants to be a head and why he wants to be a head teacher. 
And then two final interviews. One is Daisy Christodoulou, who is setting such an interesting agenda for all of us in terms of assessment. And she talks about comparative judgments and how that helps in terms of teacher workload. It gives students better feedback. It actually means that you're not doing so much work, that the students are doing more work in a sense. But I think there's also something really important in what she's saying about giving expertise centre place to teachers and reprofessionalising them. And we finish with uh, Sir David Carter. He is the National Schools Commissioner. I asked him to reflect on what we've learned about what are the ingredients of the most successful multi-academy trusts. And also just to talk about something I've heard him saying publicly, which is you don't change a school's culture as a quick fix. It's taking time. And he talks really interestingly about that. And then we've managed to catch on tape the moment when I'm able to present him with his Christmas CD mix that I made. So something for everyone there, I think. Hope you enjoy it and I hope you have a great break when you finally get there. I'm John Bush. I'm the, one of the principals at the Old Shore Academy. We're unusual because of two principals and no deputy heads and have flattened our leadership structure down from four tiers down to two. So um, t- tell us how that came about then, John. Previous incumbent retired and we were in an interesting position with a financial notice to improve, uh, a small role and a number of issues. So the governors asked us would we take on the mantle, so we said we'll take up the challenge and we'll prove in a year we can make it work. And they gave us a year, so here I am in year two. And what's that like on a day-to-day basis? I mean, do you have a very clear demarcation of which of the two of you is doing what? We have a joint. We have two offices which have been knocked through. So one office is now our, our small conference room where sometimes we meet people together, sometimes on our own, and then we have a working office where we work together. Now we have. I'm the accounting officer because we're a, a SAT, a single uh, academy trust, and clearly the uh, from the SFA and the FA point of view, they want a single name. So in effect, I'm the CEO because of the accounting officer responsibilities. Um, Mike, my uh, counterpart, Mike. Mike Liddell, he has a real strong um, pastoral background and mine's curriculum because we were the two deputies and essentially we agree that there are certain areas we work on independently but we have the same views on but it means we don't overlap because it's quite efficient then but certain things we agree on and that is to do with finance and staffing and essentially big question is do we argue of course we argue but because we argue and there's no overall boss we're convinced every time we come out of the uh, we come up with a better decision and that works very very well and what's been the, the response of staff and also of parents um our total advertising budget for last year was, a, was about 400 pounds okay and here we are in the beginning of september and we've started off with 13 percent growth in our pupil numbers and then on top of that uh, another local school has closed and out of that we've taken on additional start, uh, additional students so in a short period of time we've had nearly 120 students join us nearly a 23% increase and parents like what we do because there's always two of us they can always talk to the principal if it gets that far we, have some, we do some unusual things we share an entrance with that ASDA for the pupils and so Mike and I stand at the two entrances every morning and every night, welcome the star, uh, pupils, tell parents, if you ever want to talk to us, you know where to find us. And that was, in fact, some of the parents who were just ASDA users have now put the children with us because they see us every day. 
like what they say. John, thank you. It's fascinating. I'm Sarah Ford. I'm ASCO's pay condition employment specialist. Um, and what does that mean you actually do? Well, for ASCO, it means I look at um, anything that comes in to do with the pay and condition side of things and also members' employment issues. That means I answer queries that come in from hotline, but also deal with um, all employment engagement issues. Now, I think it would be fair to say that the job in the English part of ASCOL has become more complicated, hasn't it? And that's because we're seeing the development of multi-academy trusts. And in the old days, if you were moving from one local authority to another, you'd get a new contract. But you wouldn't spend a lot of time looking at your contract because presumably they didn't vary very much. Now they do. So if somebody is moving into a, a, a different workplace and into a trust, what kind of things in their contract should they look out for particularly? Well, you definitely need to look at your contract now because you can't um, assume anything about your contract. One of the first things I would say is if you are moving around and you're an ASCO member, you need to come through the hotline and ask to have your contract checked. It's a free service. But the key things that we would be looking for are um, around your continuity of service, your continuity of employment. What is that date um, and what does it um, mean for things like your um, sick entitlement? Um, I know most of you will be thinking, well, it's all right, I'm never sick. Well, you might not have been up until now, but if you're thinking of a winter holiday, what happens if you suddenly break your leg on the slopes? You're going to need to know, um, are you covered um, so we want to know what your sick entitlement will be because you might be starting from scratch which means you'll have no sick um, pay. The other thing we'll want to look at is whether you're on a probation period and while you're on a probation period your employment rights are really really limited um, and that can be for um, up to two years some probation periods um, and also um, banks will if you're looking for a mortgage will consider your employment not permanent while you're on a probation period so again really um, some big issues for a probationary, so that probationary period thing means that you know you could be appointed in September and because you're on a two-year probationary period the, you get a bad set of results you know uh, nine months into that job and the probationary period means that you then discontinue your employment is that, is that right? You could be finished within a week depending on the terms of your um, probation period and it wouldn't just be on results so if the employer feels that actually you're just not the right fit for that um, um, organisation um, they can terminate the contract. Is there something also we've been talking about ethical leadership and in a sense this is about tre treating people right no. is there something people should look out for in terms of where they are going to be expected to work? Definitely. We've seen some real cases of um, mobility clauses, I would call them, although they're not always termed that in the contract, but people are um, told that they might have one place of employment, but the employer would look to um, move them elsewhere within um, a multi-academy trust, say, um, at the employer's discretion where reasonable. Now, what your idea of reasonable and the employer's idea of reasonable might not always be the same. So if you've got something like that, you really need to firm it up. We've had members who the employer have wanted to travel up to 150 miles. Now, the 150 miles could also be across really bad roads. Um, we've had people who've been asked to travel, for instance, uh, right across country, um, and 150 miles in that instance was looking at a three hour um, each way. Um, and we wouldn't deem that reasonable, but the employer felt that that was reasonable. Sarah Ford, thank you very much. You're welcome. I'm um, Nick McKenzie. I'm an education partner of Brown Jacobson. And uh, for those people who don't know, tell us what Brown Jacobson does. Uh, we're a full-service law firm, but we're also specialists in the education sector. 
with a particular focus on schools and academies in the state funded. Uh, and you're also a parent, and that's what I want to just talk to you about. So uh, tell us about your children. So I've got uh, three children. I've got uh, James, my eldest, who's just about to be 13, and then I've got two daughters, Isabella and Sophia, who are 11 and just coming up to nine. And we've just been talking about how the accountability system kind of drives so much of the thinking and also the practice in uh, lots of schools and colleges. Uh, And you just kind of talked about what you wanted your children to learn, what was going to prepare them for life. So just kind of reflect on that. Yeah, well, one of the things I reflect on is seeing the change in the workplace since I um, entered the world of work. And I really am very interested in sort of how the children collaborate and work with others, be it on the sports pitches or be it in the classroom. And just going forward, I really want them to be able to have the skills to be able to collaborate and work with others because I recognise that's actually the only way you succeed when you get into the world of work. And just looking at the changes um, in terms of technologies bringing, I can just see that making it even harder. So placing more emphasis on the, those skills and the importance of those. So something that I'm really keen on to see that the schools my children go to really support that. And just in terms of the, the workplace, how, how is the workplace different now from when you uh, first started as a lawyer? So when I first started, everyone had their, their own office. Um, you were able to close uh, the door and you, you could walk up a corridor, etc. Now it, it's all open plan, but actually it's moved a stage beyond that where actually no one has an allocated desk. You have a zone and you, work, you walk in and you work as teams, but people may not be there every day, etc. So you really need to make sure you've got those good personal relationships ever more than you used to because um, you may be speaking to people far more on the phone or video conference, Skype, etc. And so this is a reminder, if we're going to outpace the robots, we need to keep reminding young people how to be human beings. I think that's a fantastic point. <laughs> Nick, thank you. Pleasure. Julie Robinson, I'm the General Secretary of Independent Schools Council. Who, who, who do you represent, first of all? We represent the Schools Association across independent schools. That's the fee-charging schools across the UK. That's seven associations and four affiliates. So the Independent Schools Council provides a central point and a voice for their common concerns. And, th- and this is a lot of schools, isn't it? I mean, what, what kind of number of schools are we talking about? It's over 1,300 schools of a variety of kinds and it's half a million pupils. And now you, 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 those schools are playing a part in the school sector overall and we talk about the kind of partnership working that they do alongside maintained schools and, and uh, academies and so on. But what, what kind of things are you particularly proud of when you hear that they're, they're working with uh, maintained schools? Yes, our schools really want to be seen as part of the overall school system so educationally there are lots of things they can offer but of course all of these partnerships are of mutual interest so some schools will link together for various activities like sporting, music and dramatic activities. Other schools will share their teaching staff, um, they'll share resources and facilities. But the things we're really, really proud of are the high profile things that I guess make a difference to children. So that would be sharing university preparation and university application, careers advice um, and specialist teaching that can have a ripple effect across several schools.
And I, I guess you'll you'll get irritated, like a lot of members of uh, of our school get irritated. There's, there's quite often a kind of caricature, isn't there, of independent schools? And the the assumption is that every independent school is a is a selective school, like you know by definition, and that every independent school is setting fees of you know, forty thousand pounds. That isn't the reality, in fact, is it? No, there are very few top hats and strange uniforms across our sector. The typical school is about 160, 170 pupils, in fact. Only half of our schools are academically selective. Uh, as I said, their uniforms are perfectly normal. Um, the average school fee isn't in excess of £40,000. It's more like thirteen or £14,000 a year. Um, and there are very few full boarding schools left. So the usual case for our schools is day schools, perhaps rural ones, um, prep to middle age range. And the parents are both working and possibly one of their salaries pays the school fees. And of course, what, what, what we've all got in common wherever we work is that these are children and teachers and school leaders, aren't they? Yes, the teachers are the same, children are the same everywhere. We all have our special needs, special problems, um, and everyone's working very, very hard to do a really good job um, to do the best they can for their children. Julie Robinson, thank you. It's a pleasure. So Mark Daw, I'm the Chief Executive of the Association of Employment Learning Providers. And tell us what that uh, association does. So we represent uh, primarily independent training providers who deliver 75% of all apprenticeships, but we also have college members, university members and endpoint assessment organisations as members. And you, you might just have people in, in schools who kind of think they know about apprenticeships, but maybe don't know enough about apprenticeships. What, what would you be saying to us are the, uh, the inherent values of apprenticeships? I mean, the key thing about an apprenticeship is it is a job. So you have to have a job. Um, and then you get substantial training around knowledge, skills and behaviours in that job. And that will be a mixture of on-the-job training, so learning while you're doing, as well as getting all the employability skills that gives, as well as knowledge development sort of through off-the-job training, and that might be in the workplace or it might be at college, just depending on what sector you're working in. And uh, what, what, what's the big advantage uh, for, for a young person doing an apprenticeship? Well, I've got some lovely examples of, you know, for example, an engineering apprentice um, who's walking around with his employer to school saying, next year, after my three years, I'm on £37,000, got my own car, uh, and I was sitting where you are uh, three years ago, and I'm also in a job and progressing. Another apprenticeship, um, an accounting one, was in his third year, and he's actually managing the graduates that come in because he has the work experience and the understanding that the graduates don't. So for many professions, actually looking at a, a degree apprenticeship, for example, where you're learning and doing rather than just going off to university, it's a great, a great opportunity. And for others in construction, you know, starting at level two, actually it's the, it's the thing to do rather than trying to go off into a classroom-based programme. Mark, thank you very much. I'm Claire Somerville and I'm the Head of Children and Young People's Dance at One Dance UK. Um, so tell us, what is uh, One Dance UK? One Dance UK is the National um, Sector Support Organisation and the Subject Association for Dance in School. And we're worried about dance in school, aren't we, at the moment? We love it, but we're worried. Tell us why we're worried about it. We're worried because we think that sometimes schools um, don't prioritise dance as part of their curriculum. And um, we want to make sure that every child and young person has the access to dance in, in part of their school day. Uh, and why do we think dance is so important to young people? 
because dance is um, a really fantastic art form for young people to express themselves, to be physically creative, to explore who they are as a human being and um, to improve their health and well-being. I'm Matt Davis, I'm the UK Regional Director for Education Development Trust. Uh, so tell us about Education Development Trust, uh, who are you and what do you do? Sure, we're a, uh, a, a charity, and a not-for-profit education company. We work globally, working with governments, with uh, schools, with leaders, with teachers to improve the quality of education, to improve life chances. And uh, one of the things you have a particular interest in is in a kind of fragmented system. Uh, how can we learn from each other as, as leaders of schools and colleges? So what, what reflections have you got on, on what the key ingredients are in, in terms of making that happen? Yeah, so we've done um, uh, tons of work over the last couple of years uh, based around the model of peer review, which we developed with uh, initially a very small group, seven, seven head teachers, uh, in order to to build something that went beyond just checking and, uh, and monitoring one another's work to be actually a, a long-term sustainable approach to collaboration to improve, improve pupil outcomes. Uh, over the last couple of years we've worked with actually now about 1,200 schools all around the country uh, but I think the most interesting uh, trend for us has been the, uh, the tendency for local authorities, particularly in some of the groups that have succeeded local authorities, the school-led bodies in, in Birmingham, in Essex, in, in Cumbria, to see uh, peer review and collaboration as the glue that holds the local system together to allow the, to, to allow the local authority or, or the successor bodies to take a step back uh, and design from a sort of position of safety uh, what comes next. You know, blank piece of paper, if schools are working together, how is it that we all work together, the, the, the local area and the schools themselves, to, to make sure that the, the capacity and the resources for school improvement are in the right place at the right time. It's, there's something reassuring about this, isn't there? Because in a system which too often can feel a bit mechanistic, what you're essentially saying is it's robust collaboration, not just collaboration for the sake of it. It's, yeah, got, to, it's got to be underpinned, doesn't it, by a sense of rigour. But that, that is the key ingredient in improving things between our schools, right? Absolutely. And, I mean, it quite often starts fairly mechanistically, actually. So it's, you know, it's about some... some some training, some input from, from people who do this stuff, uh, and then it's about you know really rigorous systems and routines. But actually, what grows out of that is the, the, the culture, the ability to ask those quite difficult questions to your fellow professionals, in a way that you know uh, that that will actually lead to improvement. You know, we talk about this as being about uh, improving, not proving. And once you've established the culture that you know we're asking these questions for the right reasons, uh, that's when the, the magic really happens. I think. Let me just ask you one other thing. When I talk to, to school leaders and college leaders, the number one issue is funding for them. The number two issue is recruitment and then retention, but recruitment particularly, even in London, um, which we used to assume was you know, full of people who wanted to become teachers. It's not the case anymore. Now, you've got this really interesting programme called the Future Teaching Scholars Programme. So just tell us about that, because it's, it's pretty bold. It's bold and, and uh, not, not as well known as we'd like, actually. So, yeah, I'd love to tell you about it. Uh, Future Teaching Scholars is a DfE programme. Um, we've been asked to find 300 uh, high-potential maths and physics teachers over the next nine years. It's three cohorts of 100, uh, 100 teachers. The really interesting, as you say, bold aspect of this, and I think it is actually internationally pretty unique, uh, is that we're recruiting uh, 
academically very able um, maths and physics students in year 13 so we're checking their academic capabilities but also assessing them for their the soft skills that we know uh, associated with being good teachers they uh, then are supported for each of the three years of their undergraduate studies and they're paired with a, a, a brilliant local teaching school near to their university. During their undergraduate studies they have about 10 days a year out in schools and are slowly being inducted and trained into the, into the life of a teacher. They also come together each year for a national conference and various other bits of professional development support. Once they, once they graduate, uh, they do a one-year school-based initial teaching teacher training program again in one of our our, our teaching school partner schools uh, and then they do a further two years in the in the teaching profession with a, a, a sort of an enhanced package of, of uh, professional development support there is uh, some a reward for doing that so um, the, the model is rather than uh, a um, uh, debt forgiveness or other models we actually give them a, a £5,000 grant for each of the three years of their undergraduate studies it's a strings attached grant so if you drop out you, you repay the loan uh, and we're seeing some really interesting patterns from this so in terms of uh, the, the, the cohort that's attracting it's very often young people who wouldn't otherwise go to university so actually the cash injection is the thing that allows them to, to, to attend university in the first place um, and the second thing I think which is really interesting is the route into this programme. As I say, I think we'd like it to be better known and if you know to be a bit, bit more in the public consciousness, but actually the, the route almost overwhelmingly is the sort of tap on the shoulder from your existing maths or physics teacher who says to a, a young person who's academically capable in the subject will be going on to a you know a prestigious university programme, but also the teacher sees they have the right stuff to be a teacher and they actually take it to one side and saying, well, you know, I've seen this programme, had you considered teaching as a route, this would be a great option for you. And that, that adds all sorts of things into it in terms of you know, the assessment of the person's ability to teach but also you know their understanding of individual pupils circumstances and what that what a program like this might be. It strikes me as an incredible example of kind of growing your own talent but also of something which the, the teaching profession generally has not been very good at which is telling a, a positive story about being a teacher. Yeah absolutely and uh, you know I think in, in, in leadership you know this idea of the, the tap on the shoulder that, that sort of encourages someone who perhaps wouldn't otherwise have stepped forward to a leadership position that's quite a well-known phenomenon you know I don't know if we see it in teaching in the same way but actually as as teachers you know you're in a, a class of, uh, of 30 potential future teachers we know uh, in a sort of abstract way that um, by developing uh, capability in, in STEM subjects in some ways uh, we can't allow all of these young people to go off into in the industries which employ them we need some people to be teachers it's a great way of, of shortcutting that and, and getting in first thanks for talking to us thanks Jeff that's great <laughs> Claudia Harris, Chief Executive of the Careers and Enterprise Company. So tell us what the Careers and Enterprise Company is. We were set up to make sure that schools and businesses are better connected to help inspire and prepare young people for the world of work. We know that young people who have more engagement with the world of work whilst they're in education have much better employment outcomes, but today that doesn't work as well as it could do. Not because everyone doesn't want it to work well, because there's not good coordination and good infrastructure, and we're there to provide that infrastructure. And you're doing some, some interesting stuff. You're using uh, diff different people who haven't perhaps worked in schools and colleges. You're using technology in different ways. Give us a flavour of the kind of things that can help to break barriers between the world of the child's school life and the potential employment. So helping young people to meet with businesses that, you know, 
they might not think of for them. They might think that the kind of people who work in those businesses come from a particular background or have a particular look. And actually, when they go into those businesses, realizing that actually they're full of people who are much more diverse than those young people would realize is one of the most powerful things that we can do. Role modeling for young people, helping them to find relatable people in the world of work who inspire them and help them to imagine their future is so powerful. And just recently, I met a young man who went to do work experience at the home office and said he never expected it to be as diverse as it was. He thought it would be a lot of uh, old white men and it wasn't and it really inspired him and made him think that he had the potential to go and work in that organisation so I think a lot about this is breaking down uh, perceptions and creating relatable role models and what we've been able to do is to bring in businesses perhaps who haven't worked so much in this space before um, or maybe who haven't worked in particular locations, we've just done a massive uh, deal with Burberry um, across the Yorkshire region to really do a lot of uh, school engagement in that region they have a huge facility there and that's going to be really powerful inspiring young people around the creative industries in the years to come and we're also using tools and research to help schools to really look at how they're performing against best practice and improve their best practice really against a very clear evidence base. Claudia Harris thank you. Uh, my name's Sam Kent I'm an assistant head at Abbeywood School. Uh, and how long have you been doing that Sam? Uh, about four or five years now. Now you've just said a sentence which I don't hear all the time which was you would love to be a head teacher so t- talk us about that. Yeah, I think you, uh, as a head teacher, you have the ability to inspire not only students, but also staff and the community. You touched on it this morning, where you were talking about how important our role is as figures within the community. Um, and I think that's, that's vital for you know, the area that we work in um, and making sure that they see us as uh, somewhere that they can come and seek advice and support whenever they need it. And how long have you been assistant head? Uh, Same, so four or five years, so overseeing uh, lots of different things. At the moment, I oversee pupil premium, high ability students, teaching and learning. Uh, Also have to write the timetable every now and then. Uh, So, yeah, it's... uh, But even that is is certainly now, in our current climate, is a really exciting thing to do. And thinking about, well, how can we battle the current, you know, two-year or three-year key stage three? You know, we've come up with a almost a mini option block in year nine so you know we're, we're advocates of creative subjects we we really want our students to be able to do music and drama and art and cre- uh, design technology so we've come forward with a creative option block in order to let them you know just go a bit further in terms of working out what they want to do before they then uh, you know reduce those in their year nine option so yeah Sam, thank you very much and I look forward to talking to you when you're ahead. Thank you very much, hopefully. Uh, My name's Daisy Christodoulou and I'm the Director of Education at No More Marking. So, No More Marking, uh, which everybody's eyes uh, light up at the thought of that. So, tell us what the organisation does. So, we provide an online comparative judgement engine. What that allows you to do is you can scan in some of your pupil work, some of their essays, and instead of marking them traditionally, what happens is you see pairs of the kids' essays will come up on the screen. And you just have to look at the two, read the two, and say which one is the better piece of writing. And if you do enough judgments like that, and your colleagues do enough judgments like that, uh, the comparative judgment algorithm that sits behind our system will crunch all of your decisions and come up with a measurement scale for all of your scripts. So it sounds a bit funny when you put it like that, but if you have a go at it, you can see that you can accurately grade a whole set of scripts in a fraction of the time it takes normally. And just give a, f- a flavour of that. So, so how much time would you expect, say, a primary teacher to, to need to spend marking? 
So we've noticed at primary that's where we can get really, really huge uh, efficiency gains. So we think that at primary, uh, for a typical two form entry primary with 60 children in a year group, 12 teachers across the school, we think that it will take each teacher 25 minutes to mark a year group set of scripts and to come up with a grade that's really accurate for them. So, so just say that figure yeah. again. So take yeah. a primary teacher, yeah. how long yeah. to mark how many? We, we really think it can take 25 minutes, uh, just 25 minutes, um, because the judging you can do, you can make judgments relatively quickly. At primary, you can get all your teachers involved. So we think for a year group of 60 children, if you get all of your 12 teachers involved, to mark that one year group set of scripts, that's 25 minutes and you'll get an accurate grade. Well, I've just been listening to the presentation and it's, it struck me, A, that, that one of the benefits is exactly what you've described as about teacher workload and we have to do something about that. And, and frankly, the only people who can do that are school and college leaders, really, aren't they? We've got to have the faith to do that. Um, but there's a second benefit as well, which I'd like you just to talk about, and that is that you're essentially putting a lot of the power about making judgments and underpinning rationale for judgment into the hands of teachers. Just reflect on that for us. Yeah, you're definitely right. And that's the thing that actually most excites me about comparative judgment is that instead of having to take a script and look at, if you like, a tick box set of criteria or a mark scheme that can be quite narrow, uh, instead of having to mark a script against that, you can actually look at two scripts and say to yourself, which is the best piece of writing? Which is the piece of writing that I like the most, that I think is doing the best thing, that I think is, is, is most creative? You can make a holistic judgment about it. You're not tied to quite pernickety and pedantic judgments. And I think we've seen across all phases of education recently that those tick box styles of mark schemes have a really negative impact on the classroom. So the, the, the joke I always give is the one that, we, you know, at primary you have to look for the fronted adverbial uh, and, and that's one of the tick boxes on the, on the mark scheme that pupils use a fronted adverbial. And so you end up with pupils writing sentences like, forgettably, he crept through the darkness. And, and yes, they've used the fronted adverbial, but does that sentence, is it meaningful? Does it make sense? Does it hang together with the rest of the script? And I'm speaking to a primary school teacher recently who said their child had written out uh, 20 sentences that, that, that weren't coherent and didn't make sense, but each one had ticked a different box on this, on this mark scheme. And I think, unfortunately, the system we're in at the minute is encouraging that approach not just to assessment, but to teaching and learning. So for me, the most exciting thing about comparative judgment is that it allows teachers to make a holistic professional judgment about complex open tasks like writing. And what we show is that you can make those judgments with actually a much higher degree of reliability than with these very pedantic, very fussy mark schemes. Uh, last question. So we're, we're talking potentially in this podcast to nine, about 19,000 school and college leaders. So what, what, what should they be doing more of or less of, in your opinion? I think less of, definitely, written comments. So I think written comments, whether you're using comparative judgment or not, I just think written comments are, they give so little benefit relative to the time they take. And I think so many of them often can be copied from or paraphrased from the mark scheme, but they end up being things like, you need to infer more insightfully, or even you need to use more full stops. Well, all very well, but where? Where do I use the full stops? Uh, Dylan William gives a, a joke about one with a, a people getting a comment saying, you need to be more systematic in your scientific investigation. And he asks the people what that means, and the people says, well, if I'd known how to be more systematic, and I would have done so in the first place. <laughs> so I think so often a lot of written comments fall into that trap. And it's far more effective, I think, to give feedback by replanning the next lesson and doing something for everyone in the class and having some actual activities or actions that they do. So if there's one thing I think people can do less of that won't impact on negatively on learning at all, it's, it's do less written comments and think of, think of better ways to, 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 to give that feedback. 
Daisy, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, my name is David Carter. I'm the National Schools Commissioner. And just remind us, uh, as if we didn't know, what the National Schools Commissioner does. Um, so my role is to work very closely and work with the RSE, Regional Schools Commissioners team. Um, so I spend about half of my time here in the DfE uh, and about half of my time on the road working in the regions with the teams. But I think one of my core responsibilities is to try to build the confidence of the system to understand how the school improvement journey can take place over time. And I guess, you know, you, you and I have both been around for a few years. But before 2010, nobody talked about Matt's multi-academy trusts. When, when you reflect on what are the key ingredients in making multi-academy trusts successful for each individual constituency, like, what, what would you say? I think that's a great question. I think there are three things. One is, and I talk about this a lot, the Matt dividend. So what is it that the Matt brings and adds value to those children who are educated that way that is better and exceeds the offer that was made to them before? The second one is they have to, as MAT leaders, understand how they are going to conceive and deliver a school improvement strategy that meets the needs of every school they've got rather than just one generic uh, model. And I think the third one is, is about the MAT as a great employer. So how do you look after your staff and you develop them professionally but also take care of their well-being as well so that they feel that the teaching profession or when they become a leader is as good as they always hoped it would be? Now, you were a head teacher in your previous life twice, if I remember correctly. Um, when people talk about headship now, they talk about thinking that it's all kind of short-term and that improving a school can, you know, if you don't do it in nine months or a year, that's it, you're going to be sacked and so on. I've heard you publicly saying that you know that it takes time to, to really even stabilise a school. Just, just talk us through that. Sure. So I, I think from my experience having done it and now seeing it in, in, uh, in the role I have now, I think it's three to five years to turn a school from being one that is really on its knees to one that will never be like that again and can give a secure education to the young people that attend it. Um, and I think it's one of the biggest risks that we've got, that we... That we develop a narrative that gives those school leaders the time to get the uh, the process of improvement really embedded so by time I mean uh, not time to take your time to work out what the problem is because the best leaders work it out in weeks what the problem is going to be but it's that difference between doing the right things but recognizing that it takes time for the results to catch up as opposed to not being quick enough and not being precise enough about the improvement challenge and then just letting results flow as if by accident and so the best leaders who who take that three to five year journey hand over their school to their successor in a far far better state than when they took it on themselves and that's got to be the goal of a self-improving system that the baton that you and I handed over to our successors should enable them to continue that journey. Absolutely in my case actually it wasn't the baton it was the Barton. Uh, now finally bum bum uh, finally you of course are um You've got a music degree, music teacher of old, so I'm hoping this will be an exciting moment as I give you the official Askell Christmas CD. I, I, I'm touched and moved. <laughs> I'm feeling very tearful at the moment, but that's that's People brilliant. often do, to be honest. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. The Jeff Barton Festive Mix.